0: Do you want a cash flowing portfolio that lets you live a life of freedom? Sunsets and palm trees on your terms. Your host, Corey Peterson, is a rags to riches real estate millionaire who started with no money or credit and quickly grew a multi million dollar portfolio of cash flowing apartments. You're only one deal away from creating the cash flow life, and the Multifamily Legacy Podcast will show you how. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Multifamily Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peterson, and today we've got none other than my good friend, and we like to call him Big Mike, but Mike Zilankic, <laughs> you're going to kill me for murdering Big you.
1: Mike is good. Mike's Zlatnik works, but Big Mike.
0: Big Mike with Tempo Family of Funds and Syndications, longtime friend, longtime advocate of what you do, Mike. And for everybody that's listening right now, you're going to want to listen to this podcast because Mike is very diverse in lots of ways of making money. So if you're interested in making money, this is the one that you're going to want to pay attention to because it's really, really exciting what we're going to dive into. But before we do that, A word from our sponsors. Are you ready to take your multifamily game to the next level and learn the amazing results of living the cash flow life? Apartment investing can change your life. I know for a fact it's changed mine. And I would like to share my extraordinary journey with you and the clues I've learned along the way by giving you my book, Copy Your Way to Success, for free. So text the word BOOK, B-O-O-K, to 480-500-1127. Again, that's the word BOOK. B-O-O-K to 480-500-1127, and my team will ship it to you absolutely free as a way to say thank you for listening to this podcast. And remember, your paradise is possible. All right, we're back. So we're going to get Mike on this thing. Mike, before we get started, tell everybody who you are, kind of a little bit more about your background and your company.
1: Thank you, Corey. I appreciate you having me on a podcast. I live in Brooklyn, New York with four monkeys and a cat, my lovely wife, Human monkeys. So, I have four kids and a cat. Busy with family. We do a lot of sports. But my passion is real estate. Originally, immigrated from the former Soviet Union in '89. It was that long ago. And then I got my degree in mathematics in the U.S. Make long story short, went into corporate world. Spent almost 15 years in technology, but discovered real estate in 2000. Never looked back. Went real estate full time in 2009. Been running various funds and syndications, and today we run a family of broadly diversified funds with income strategy, growth, and income strategy, as well as one-off syndications. We've done number of multifamily deals, number of open-air shopping, and so on and so forth. We're very opportunistic. If something makes sense and it's a great deal with a great operator, we invest, and that's what we do. We are basically both. We raise capital from investors, and we also investors as we deploy capital in various deals. So it's kind of the best of both worlds.
0: Mike, you're one of the best that I know that does it. And I think everybody leans on you for a lot of your guidance and a lot of your knowledge. You're in so many different things. And I think you see so many different types of opportunities come across your desk. But let's talk about the economy for a second. And where's stage, right? And what's your outlook on our current economy? And also let's talk about where is the opportunity?
1: it's a crystal ball question. The standard wave, I used to have a wonderful crystal ball, it broke and find another one for sale. So who knows the future, right? A lot of this stuff is speculative in nature. But we've all been promised recession, 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 it hasn't really happened. What we have seen is interest rates climbing. Fed has been fighting the inflation. Inflation seems to be sticky, and they're still fighting it, and they're still not done. And the recession doesn't look like a recession. The stock market is sort of doing well, a lot of things appear to be functioning. So let me go back to the basics. Can you really have a recession with unemployment being this low? So one of the major driving factors of the current inflation is full employment or very low unemployment. As people work, they get salaries, they get bonuses. And when you can't find a good employee to hire, you're forced to give increases to the existing staff as well as you pay more for new folks. So in this environment, It's creating wage inflation and the wage inflation is pushing overall inflation up. So there is a good old Phillips curve concept. The Phillips curve states the relationship between the inflation and unemployment. And when the unemployment is very low, inflation is high. You just can't get it under control with very low unemployment. So the major goal in what the Fed is doing is to create demand destruction and force some layoffs and force some companies to scale back and cause a recession but they are not successfully doing it, it's taken longer than expected in essence. So it doesn't feel like a recession is coming anytime soon. Original projections at the beginning of the year was the recession is coming second half of the year. We are in the second half of the year, but the recession is not here yet. Will it be Q4, maybe some point next year? Meanwhile, we find ourselves in this strange state of the affairs where stock market is behaving as if everything is just fine. Everything is going well
0: we're back to normal, right? It's really weird. Yeah, I totally agree. That's a really great perspective because when you look at that statistic, right, you're like, oh my gosh. Usually, I mean, the Fed is trying to break things. When they're raising rates, they're trying to destroy growth, which means destroying jobs, right? They don't like to say it, but that's really what it does. Yet, it's not really happened. Maybe that's a good thing. I think it's personally a good thing because I don't like it when we go to the extremes. But we do have disruption, right? In disruption of what's going on and uncertainty, then where is the opportunities? And where do we place our money, Mike? I mean, you're trying to find places for capital. What do we invest in right now?
1: Sure. So something interesting happened, rising interest rates fast, and there was a lot of risk of recession, it created uncertainty and volatility in the outcomes. But as time passed, the overall consensus is that things are not as bad as people were fearful. So stability, some kind of stability is beginning to take place. As a result, some transactions may consummate second half of the year, essentially where we are at. So what we are seeing is we still want to invest. And I'll give you examples of some of the checks we've written recently, but we want to invest more defensively. So in this environment, obviously, debt looks attractive. If you can write a check into first lien loan, into some kind of preferred equity, it feels a little bit more defensive than writing a common equity check. The second thing you can do, you can still write a common equity check, but you want a deal that has lower leverage. The deal has fixed interest rate, almost to the point where if you can get Fixed interest rate, no prepayment penalty, low leverage, good cash flow from day one, property that cash flows well from the start, and you have some lease-up opportunity, whether it's multifamily or industrial or whatnot. Now, you're going to say this is dream world. Well, it exists. So we just transacted in May on two shopping plaza acquisitions, one in Fairfax, Virginia, the other one is on Orlando, Florida. And there was a motivated, distressed, publicly traded REIT that had to sell. So these type of deals do exist, and open-air shopping plazas' cap rates still substantially higher than anything in a multifamily. So I know you're a multifamily guy. do a lot of student housing. But for investors who are used to multifamily, my point of view is you got to have eyes and ears open and be a little bit more flexible to go outside of just what you're used to. The opportunities may exist in areas where you're not as comfortable. And by the way, shopping plazas, open-air retail is a contrarian play. Most folks think of it well. E-commerce continues into that sector, but the reality is they're not building any more product either. So the demand is still growing, even though e-commerce has taken larger share of the market. But the physical locations—it's real estate, location, location, location. If they're well located, open-air shopping, people go there, and many retailers want to go in. This is just an example of what we are doing on the new deals front.
0: You made a really great point there. If you're a one-trick pony this definitely is the time to learn another trick, right? Whether it's self-storage, open air, like what you just talked about, we're looking at a self-storage space because it's something that we're highly interested in as another means to, okay, if the cheese is moved, everybody can keep on trying to fight for the same cheese or you can just find a different plot of gold in a different cheese bed, right? And so I think that sage advice is that we have to be a little bit redundant. I say redundant, but flexible too, in that we need to be able to say, is what I'm doing working? And if it's not, then what?
1: Yeah, I agree with you. We've taken this approach for many years now. So if you ask me, what do I do? And even my kids ask me, what do I do? What do I do for a living? Are you a real estate agent. Explain about my kids that this small so they know at this point. I tell them I'm a real estate fund manager. We're really capital allocators. That's the key term. What does capital allocators mean? It just means we allocate capital where we see opportunities. So of course, we don't want to invest with strangers and you don't want to jump into a new area of investment you don't know anything about. I've seen that mistake many times. So people go from being multifamily into something they've never done before. It has too much risk. You don't want to do that. But if you have somebody who is an expert in self-storage and you can raise capital and you know they have strength in storage, then you can do effectively what we do. You could just shift the capital dollars into a strategy with a partner that is very experienced. And by the way, just to be very clear with shopping plazas, we are not operators. Because we're capital allocators, we raise capital, we deploy it into deals, but we don't run these assets. We are partnered with the operator whose whole business is do these open air shopping plazas. So one of these major requirements for us, we go vertical with experts. If you are multifamily guy, and you just want to jump into self-storage, and as your first deal in self-storage, the chances are we are not going to write you a check unless you have a really strong partner that we believe can run the asset. You've got to have that vertical expertise in that asset class, location, leasing, renovations. All of it, right? Property management, all of this, but in that area, that field.
0: Yes. And guys, that's a, another huge piece of Big Mike advice. Right now, we are looking and I'm learning the self-storage space, and I will probably partner on my first deal, or I'll get a bunch of experts to give me good advice, invite them to be on my team. Maybe they're a minority shareholder of it. I'm going to find and track someone that wants to be a part of my team and guide me, right? Because there's no way that I'd want to do that on my own, right? And to Mike's advice, Mike's got the money, right? And the money is patient. It doesn't jump to wild conclusions and it really looks for value. And Mike said it, he's protecting the downside, right? The downside, that's what you're looking at, right? Is how do we protect?
1: Yeah, and I'll add this. So, with high interest rates, the banks and the treasuries to be patient is that simple. You can park your cash in US Treasury short duration and get a risk free yield. Now, their yield may not be. Super exciting, but it's certainly exciting relative to what it was a few years ago. So you can be patient. You can still get a yield of, say, 4.5% with banks and low to mid-fives today with short-duration treasuries. And that gives folks incentives not to do anything, sit in their hands. But when you find a great deal and you're convinced that the deal has the downside protection, I gave you some examples, some of the elements of downside protection. And the other thing that most folks forget that now may be the time to transact when the interest rates are high. As crazy as it sounds, most folks think, well, the interest rates have gone up. Yes, people are feeling the pain who borrowed with low interest rates and now the interest rates are high. But if you buy when interest rates are high and you have a fresh experience, not experience rates going from low to high, but they you start high and the rates come down, you have a wonderful journey because you can always refinance on the way down. It's almost like a one-way option only protecting you against the interest rates going up, that's where you go fixed rate. But as long as you have no prepayment penalty, you're in a wonderful position. So looking for great deals when the interest rates are high is your classic opportunity to come into
0: real estate and make a substantial upside. Huge opportunities, guys. Me and you talked on your podcast about that. I was like, that's the play. You'd buy today's interest rate, have a long-term plan. There'll be a time where five years from now that... You can refire. Maybe it's shorter. I don't know. But like it's going to happen. And when it does, it's like a big, fat, easy button that says, give me money. And you hit it and smash it because immediately you refire, you're like, oh, my God, I'm printing money because everything you built your deal on was on high interest rates. Right. So
1: that's the general thesis, although we don't know how soon the interest will cycle back down. But the forward curve is telling us that it's likely that the interest rates will cycle back down. This is one of the fundamental concepts. Folks have asked, are these interest rates really high or not? Because in the 80s, they were much higher. Right. And the truth of the matter is, at that time, the debt, U.S. debt, U.S. national debt, and the debt in the private sector, relative to the size of the economy, was way smaller. Debt to GDP ratio was 50%.
0: Yes, it was way different. Yes. The Fed can't afford to raise rates that long, Mike, because they can't pay their interest on their debt, our U.S. debt.
1: That's exactly the case. So the long-term rates should not be at this level. long-term rates should be in the two to three percent range, which is if inflation gets back under control to that range, then the Fed funds rate should cycle back down. So the expectation is maybe and again, this is highly speculative, but by some portion of 25, potentially the rates will cycle back down two to three percent range, and if, it, if this were to happen, there will be a lot of opportunities for refinancing, and a lot of money will be made simply based on the momentum of where the interest rates are going. As painful as it is now, because we experienced this in the reverse direction, but it'll be, again, a pleasant journey on the way back down when the rates do that thing in two to three years.
0: Yep. Now, the only key to that is you got to try to be flexible in the debt you are securing that you have some outs, right? So step down prepay, right? Having some options built into the loan that you're looking at to be able to be flexible in three to five years, to be able to exit maybe with a 1% prepay penalty, something that's manageable to your overall loan, that's super, super important now, right? But you want to lock in as long of a rate that you can for now because we all need fixed rate stuff to protect the uncertainty.
1: In today's environment on existing projects, even if you executed incredibly well, the rent increase from a few years ago when you acquired a property. Inflation has been a friend, value at work has been a friend. Now your rents are up 30 40% versus what they were a few years back. But that's not enough to offset the increase in the debt service that has gone up substantially higher than that. So most operators are basically looking at the refi, and there is no easy path. Because of the debt service coverage ratio covenants, the amount of refi that most folks can borrow is substantially less than was just a little while ago. But What's the alternative? The alternative is to keep paying much higher interest rates on a bridge loan. It's not even a matter of choice. It's a matter of survival. And the survival is to refi if you've got the property stabilized and survive refi as fast as you can and get as much as you can. The other thing that most folks can do is they can do a piece and a B piece, right? You can get Fannie Freddie loan, get a refi with a primary piece. And then once you get your income up and you get NOI up, you can get a B piece. And with A and B piece, an assumable loan it becomes a possibility to sell the asset later down the road. Something to keep in mind, again, I don't know how many folks in the audience are very experienced operators, but that's the strategy is just to get A, B piece and maximize the loan, even in this high interest rate environment. But repayment will be something to keep in mind with Fannie and Freddie product. When you sell the asset, you may have to sell it with existing loan. So
0: Yeah. But I will tell you this though, agency debt is what's saving the marketplace, right? Like banks are not lending right now. I see very many little banks lending. If they are, it's very high. The liquidity is not there on the banks, right? To be able to lend as much. Your life goes, or they're in business, right? Life goes again, but they have what's called defeasance. If you sign a 10-year note, they want your money for 10 years. If you sell it on the seventh year, they're like, well, you still owe us three years of the feasons. So the best deal in town right now is your Freddie agency debt. And I'm looking at agency debt right now on two deals that were in a bridge note, Mike, and the rates, I think we're we'll at have to buy it down a little bit, but we're going to get like 5.5. Yeah. Five years ago, it was at five and a quarter. So we're almost to like, this is not crazy land. This is a decent rate, but they all have that supplemental, that B piece. Yeah. And that's my exit to my investors. So I can stabilize my asset. I get out of my bridge. I get to keep the asset, keep working, raising rents, doing all the things we're doing as operators. And then that B piece comes down the road. And that's hopefully going to be the piece that's going to be able to allow me to exit my capital, refine, cash out my investors. Yeah. And I'll
1: give you one classic story. we're doing one of the deals. It's pretty straightforward, right? So what a rate cap. So rate cap is tradable. So if you can refi and get rid of the bridge debt, and the bridge debt could be now eight, nine percent, whatever you borrow, depending on the paper. And you refi it into five and a half with some pay down, and you can use the rate cap policy that you have, sell the policy, and use that money to buy down the rate. So this basic concept can enhance economics on the deal and stabilize it and turn it from your bleeding cash into essentially cash flow in today's environment.
0: And some of those rate caps are worth lots of money. I mean, I get a valuation like every three or four days on some of my rate caps. And I got one that's good till October of 2024, but it's like worth $800,000. I bought it for 40 grand, Mike, right back in the day, right three years ago. Yeah. Or two years ago. And wow. And that's one of the deals I am refining. So I'm going to refi into a 5.5 rate. And then I have this rate cap. Now I can do two things. I can sell it or I can take the monthly income. And so we're trying to figure out what's the best play for the money, right? What do we do? But we have options. And see, that's the thing in making money. And this is what I love about Mike. Mike looks at all the options. I think that's your best strength, Mike, is you don't get too high or low about anything. You just kind of base it on, I think you use your mathematic background to just look at the numbers.
1: Yeah, Corey, I appreciate that. You're absolutely right. I'm actually a mathematician by education and not a very emotional guy. So everything is spreadsheets and you compare A versus B versus C option, and at the end of the day, the numbers speak. So especially when it comes to decisions like this, the accelerate cap where you just take the cash flow and effectively that's a pretty easy mathematical comparison. But in general, on a strategic front, again, I'm going back to where else you can deploy your capital, right? So looking at deals, looking opportunistically. And you've got, of course, problems you're solving protecting existing investments. But on the fresh capital side, I'll tell you this, most of the existing investments, the actual rate of return, the IRR, whatever was projected, is probably going to be less than what it was at the time of projection, right? It's just common sense. But on a forward money, you have phenomenal opportunities. And then where do you look? You could continue to look in the what you know, if you can get those deals. If you cannot, Expand your horizons, get a little bit flexible with other asset classes. We do have some really niche strategies that we deploy capital into.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's jump into that. I think that's a great segue to income, right? Everybody's looking for income right now. How do you make income, right?
1: That's right. So in a high interest rate environment, you generally have a few plays. One is you become a lender. You become a hard money lender. Obviously, you need to underwrite your loans. But if you've been an equity investor all life long and suddenly you're looking into debt, Unless you have these relationships who you can lend money to, it's not that easy to start throwing the money. But in general, hard money rates have gone up with interest rates climbing. So we do a little bit of that. Part of our strategy is to deploy cash on some of the loans. But we also have some strategic relationships that we loan the money at high yield to folks that do new strategies. So I'll give you one example. In our tempo income fund, we have a sub strategy where we loan the money to guys that buy land, raw land. Typically, it's recreational land, not your infills. And what is recreational land? Recreational land is land that is used to run your dirt bikes, to do camping ground, to go shoot your guns, right? It doesn't have the same use as building a multifamily or a bunch of single families. But these guys buy raw land dirt cheap, and then they sell it on their website on seller financing on land contract. It's a pretty powerful play because they'll go buy a lot for four grand. They'll sell it on their website for 25000 three or four hundred bucks a month. And it's crazy, but it works. And we loan the money at 16 to 18%. People that write a check into a fund, we pay them between 12 to 15% yield. And then they loan the money effectively. They don't loan the money. They just sell it. They build the price. There's no interest rate how they sell them. But if you buy for four grand, you sell for 25 your effective rate of return is gigantic. It's a niche business, but there are riches in the niches. So this is one example.
0: Yeah, that's a great example of, again, finding the opportunities that are presented. I think that is the beautiful part of the Tempo family of funds and syndications, which you guys really do, is that you have built a network. And I just want to touch on that piece of what you do, Mike, is how did you build these networks? And for everybody that's listening, I want you guys to really hear about this piece, because I think relationship building is the key and fundamental piece of any entrepreneur, right? Especially when you're raising capital, looking for money or joint ventures and stuff like that. So how were you able to capitalize on your relationships? What do you do to do that?
1: So I'll let you know, <laughs> go back to the masterminds that we've all been part of and some that I continue to go to. So on the network side, we've done quite a bit of masterminds. Obviously, the Collective Genius is where I joined the group, and I'm still in the group from 2012. So we've built relationships with number operators
0: through that group, and we raised some capital too. That's where we met. Yeah, years ago. Exactly. That was like 10 years ago, I want to say. Something like that. Maybe it's 12. It's kind of funny. You're going to
1: laugh at this. I correct this joke. So when Jason Medley, when we talk, and he says, hey, Mike, we've been friends for seven years. I said, Jason, you either have a memory problem or a math problem. Now it's 2023, right? I joined the group in 2012, so it's been 11 years. So it kind of, the time flew by so fast, but we met many years ago. So that's one of the masterminds. I belong to other masterminds, dentists, Freedom Founders. This is part of our strategy is how we raise capital. On top of that, we build relationship with strong commercial operators by going to events and conferences and masterminds and basically connecting with these institutional players who have a strategy, a specific Expertise as I mentioned, multifamily, storage, shopping, industrial. And it took years of building relationships, writing checks, watching how they report, how they solve problem, how they deliver ultimate results. So think of it this way. real estate moves very slow. Even in a fast deal, it takes few years, right? And until you go full life cycle, you just don't know. So you wind up spending time, understanding and building, Relationships with folks who communicate well why the property is still going through their life cycle. On the exit is when you count the money, but you have a pretty good idea when something is worth more than you invested and how much more. You have some idea of what the market is by virtue of how much income growth they've implemented.
0: Yeah, and why? You're just like, yeah, I see what we're doing. I have a pretty good idea. We've increased the rents and lowered our expenses. It's more profitable. You're like, ah, that's the right track, right? Exactly.
1: So where I'm going with this, building relationships takes a long time. You just got to watch folks. And the results, sometimes you just don't know until they happen. But if you connect with them, you get to know, like, and trust them. And this is what we do as fund managers. We build these relationships with these guys over the years. And they do this again and again and again. And they've succeeded in challenging markets. They've succeeded in great markets. And sometimes you just got to operate in faith. I'll give you an example. So these two shopping plazas we invested in, that group that we've invested in, we've got half a dozen, if not more deals, and none of them have exited. And it's been years. And finally, we just got an update. One of them is exiting and the numbers are phenomenal. But that deal is from 2017. It takes a long time. We knew the cash flow grew. We knew a lot of things. So that deal was going to do really well. So all the underlying data supported it. But how do you build relationships? You watch how they report even quarterly reports and what information they provide and how they respond to question all those things make a difference
0: yes right underwriting everything so really relationships are the keys masterminds different groups for everybody listening these are real big hints on how to find your core group and if you're not in a mastermind trying to find one that fits for you because it's the relationships that are the key because i joined collective genius 10 years ago or whatever it was, probably the same year you did, 2011, I want to say. That's where our friendship came from. And it's funny, all my best friends come from originally from CG. That was like my first time incubator of Corey Peterson was in that group. So many relationships were formed, so many connections that I'd never had until I met in that group. And there's the power of networking with people that have the same interests, that have the same likes, really the same kind of motivation. Great thing I loved about Collective Genius, Mike, is that we were all doing a little something different. There's a lot of guys that were doing you know, fix and flips, wholesaling, people like you, lending. And then I came in, started as a wholesaler, then started getting to the multifamily space. What a crazy ride for all of us, right? Well, we evolve.
1: At the end of the day, investment journey is an evolving journey. And I like to think of it this way. Initially, most folks focus on just generating highest income, flipping properties and do not. At some point of time you're not focusing on just highest income but you're focusing on the most let's just call it tax efficient growth we all need some income but we also need prudent growth we also need to have our time back and at the end of the day investing journey changes when you invest in the early years think of it you have a midlife investment journey you may be less concerned about a lot of passive income but as you build your net worth and as you getting closer to retirement, you want more passive income. So in the early years, you may be investing for tax efficient growth, but in the later years, you want more cash flow. So there's nothing wrong with either of these strategies, just different strokes for different folks. On top of that, different money has different needs. If you have self-directed IRA money and you can't draw the money for a while, then that money may be a little more patient versus some cash that you want to build passive income that you can actually take. That's what I love the capital allocation game because it gives you flexibility. And when folks invest in our funds, we exercise, we eat our own cat food or dog food, and we invest through our funds and through into our own deals because it makes sense. I mean, at the end of the day, everything is built with a purpose. If you have a purpose, if you know where you're going, you're going to know you got there. If not, if you're going to do
0: things just because they're bright and shiny objects, you can wind up with a house you don't want to keep. Yeah, those don't usually end up going well, in my opinion. So Mike, I want to thank you for your time coming on this podcast and just giving your amazing wisdom, insight. It's always a pleasure talking to you about money, economics, and your views. And I think you're spot on with all your sentiment and the way you think. So it's a beautiful thing. I love watching you do it. For every listening right now, what advice would you give anybody that's new to the business?
1: That's a great question. I would say if you're just learning to invest. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. So action is important than inaction. But every time you go through investment journey, there's two things, right? You invest your time and you invest dollars. You just gotta be learning from the experience. So at the end of the day, if you are beginning to invest, just ready, fire A, right? You just do it and then you learn. Unfortunately, getting a PhD in this stuff without doing it is very hard. You have to make a few mistakes you have to have a few injuries. You have to have a few cuts. So, And by the way, we're not perfect either. We've done plenty of mistakes and we've learned a lot. At times, you get your PhD in investing. And I hate to put it. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not about PhD. It's about great results by virtue of understanding what works, what doesn't work. And you will also, as a new investor, will understand yourself. You understand what you like, what you don't like. And you have to try many things until you figure out what works and then do a lot of that. That's the best way to put it. Just figure out what works. And sometimes you don't know until you keep trying multiple things.
0: Yeah. Love it. Love it. Great philosophy. Any books that you've been reading that you'd love to share that really has an impact on you lately? Wow.
1: (laughs) A lot of books. I'm I'm going to be giving you a whole list of really interesting books.
0: And again, this is all about
1: what you like. I'm kind of a mathematician economist. I love Ray Dalio's Principles of Navigating Big Death Cycles, just understanding kind of that. I do like the book, *Antifragile* by Nassim Taleb. And put it this way, listen to what he says, but don't do as he does. From what I know, he's a little bit of a, what's the word for it? I want to be careful how you put it. He's known to be a little bit more self-centered. It's just kind of like, he's not a humble guy. Not the way, at least I like to think. But the book is really strong. I do like a real simple book called Peaks and Valleys. It just talks about mental state, how things can go up and down. I love the book called The Uncertainty Solution. A really, really strong book. And I'm reading literally from my phone, from Audible. I listen to a lot of books. Just love The Uncertainty Solution. It's a really strong book. The Lords of Easy Money. This is about the Federal Reserve and, and some of the things that they've done. And the list is long. So I'm going to stop for a second. (laughs) Love it. All right, I'll give you two more, okay? Okay. There's a book called Richer, Wiser, Happier about some of the most successful investors in the world and their philosophy. So Richer, Wiser, Happier is a really good one. And then I like this book called CEO Only Does Three Things, People, Culture, Numbers. Right? If you are a leader of your own group, if you're a CEO, that's what you have to think about, people, culture, numbers.
0: I love that book. Trey Taylor wrote that, and it is a great, great book. In fact, I practice a lot of it on his hiring process, right? Oh, my God. I use it almost step by step by step. So anybody that's listening right now, this is why I love having him on the podcast, because you realize he just went through so many books. This guy reads and learns. He's a collector of knowledge and systems. It's really like you're seeing this mathematician, like come right in front of you, you understand how his brain works by feeding himself data and different point sets and reading the books. They're all a little bit different, but they all have meaning. Mike, I love that about you, my friend. I love that you are so diverse.
1: Yeah, Corey, I appreciate that. I'm honored and humbled. Reading is a journey. It's funny how it is. I love to walk. So for me to turning on a book and just walking, I can realize that one and a half hours later, I'm still walking, I'm still going on. And depending on some people love to read to me it's just a lot
0: more efficient i also drive my kids around while i'm driving it's a different way to consume you get lost in a book and you can do it i agree i used to be a written book and i couldn't go very fast but i can put on the audio
1: yeah one and a half times 1.75x and the other thing that i do for real simple reasons you like a really good book listen to it 20 times i hate to put it most people just want to consume volume And I'll tell you, the books I mentioned, many of them I've listened to at least three, four times. As crazy as it sounds, it's not about volume of books. It's about finding a few really good books and just going deeper. And you discover more in a second, third, fourth read.
0: I've read Traction probably six times by Gino Wickman. Trey Taylor's I've read at least three or four times now, right? Or different sections of that book three or four times too as well. So love it, Mike. Mike, how do people get a hold of you and find more about the Temple family of funds and syndications.
1: Thank you, Corey. And now I'm going to let people laugh a little bit because this is my standard routine. I just love this expression happen naturally. So as you know, people call me Big Mike, and I run a fund. And I have a podcast called Big Mike Fund Podcast. So I own a website called BigMikeFund.com. This is one of the easiest way to remember, BigMikeFund.com. But if you misspell it, you forget the D at the end, then you go to bigmikefun.com. I promise it's not a kinky site. (laughs) He
0: probably owns that one too, and he redirects it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of funny. I was on one of the podcasts, and I can't remember. I think it was with Corey Boatwright, one of the old, old friends. And when I said this bigmikefun.com, they heard bigmikefun.com. I said, did I hear you correctly? I got the message back in about 30 seconds. I ran to the godaddy.com and grabbed bigmikefun.com just because I don't want people to wind up at the wrong type of a site.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love it. Mike, thank you so much for coming on this podcast and sharing your wisdom and just the way you think. I think it's very intoxicating. I love the way your mind works. It's a beautiful thing, Guy. So thanks again for coming on. Guys, if you're listening to this podcast right now, make sure you share it, like it, share it with other people, get it out there because this is the types of guests that we continue to bring on this podcast that really can move your needle. Guys, success is not a coincidence. It happens because you choose to. When Mike and I met, he was on a mission and he's still on it. I see it very clearly. Guys, you have to believe in what you're doing. You'll never get any traction. But if you believe it, You can achieve it and your paradise is absolutely possible.